So what would you do if you knew that tonight was your last night on earth? I'd get those flower plants. Really? No, it doesn't. <laughs> said he'd plant a tree. He believed that work of God would go on. What else? What would you do if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt tonight is your last night on earth? Spend time with my family. Share the gospel. <laughs> to the dumpsters and start throwing things away. Maybe, uh, spend it in prayer. Spend it in prayer? Okay. Lord, I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I'm less spiritual than that. I, I, I'm thinking a double portion of dessert tonight. You know? Uh, I'm going to eat pizza because I know I ain't got to worry about heartburn. It's not going to be a problem. <laughs> Jesus knew that it was his last night on earth. Do you remember how he spent it? Let's go look at John 13, verses 1 through 17 here. You just imagine all the different things that you might want to try and do, knowing this is your last night. This is it. What would you do? I, at the very least, I think I would be, I would have in mind. You know, this is my last night on earth. You should take care of me tonight. This should be all about me tonight. Um, but Jesus does just the opposite. Would you give that, that reference again? Yeah, it's John 13. Okay. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. <clears throat> we are going to do, like, basically sword drill tonight. Uh, so get ready. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, before the Feast of Passover... When Jesus knew that it, his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel tied around at his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Now, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. For the last couple of months, Daryl's been doing these character portraits of people, and we did Moses and David and Jonah and Paul, and then we came to Jesus, and he did a couple of weeks on the one story throughout the Bible is all focused on Jesus. Last week, I continued that, talked about Jesus and his emotions how he was truly human. He had all human emotions like we do. Tonight I want to talk about the humility of Jesus. He is the God of all creation. He is the one who upholds the world by the word of his power. He is worshipped as God. The angels fly with their wings covering their feet and they cry out, Holy, holy, holy before the throne of Jesus. And yet, here he is in the form of a man. And knowing this is his last night, his hour has come. He's prepared to leave this world to suffer and die for us. He does not, at this point, finally take to himself and say, okay, now you should serve me. No, even at this last hour, he serves others. He is perfect even in his humility all the way to the end. And he has given us this example and he says that we should uh, do it just like he has. He says, uh, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Now, if the God of glory can humble himself to this point, Stoop to take the part of the lowest servant in the room. Even on the night when you might expect that he would say, this night should be about me. Then surely each one of us have an example to follow. Of lowering ourselves. Taking on the, the humblest position. Reducing ourselves in humility. And so, uh, I want us to connect that tonight. We are looking at Jesus and his humility. But I want us to be sure that we connect that with this is an example that we are to follow. And so I want us to look at Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Do you just read it when you get to it? Yep. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul in this passage here begins with this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And the point of this passage that Paul is really trying to get across is, is to live in humility with one another, just as Christ did. Uh, and there's so much, uh, 
I really started to think about this passage and, and teaching about the humility of Christ uh, because this came up in my seminary class a couple of weeks ago as we're studying Christology and who Christ is. And there is so much in this passage. Uh, it basically took the church 400 years to kind of flesh out what this all means uh, and to, to really get after that. What does it mean uh, that he was in the form of God? What does that mean to us? What does it mean that he emptied himself? Um, we're not going to go into all of that tonight. The main point of this passage is have this mind among yourselves. Jesus humbled himself by he was God. He is the essence of God. He is truly God. And he humbled himself by taking to himself a human nature, human body. And so as Christ has humbled himself in this way, we should humble ourselves as well. No one will ever go from a higher position than Christ was. And no one will ever reach a lower position than Christ took. Because he was perfect and innocent, and he suffers the wrath of God on our behalf. That is the lowest possible position. Any suffering that we endure, we have earned. We, we are sinners. We are imperfect. And anything that is dished out to us, we've earned it. We, we deserve it. So no one, none of us can ever take a lower position. Than Christ did, who took wrath on himself that he never even deserved. So how exactly, uh, how much did Jesus humble himself? We'll look here at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's question 27. The question is, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? And I think most of us, when you think of the humiliation of Christ, our minds typically go straight to the cross. And that's true. That is the ultimate. It says in that passage we read there in Philippians, it said that he became obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's the ultimate point of Christ's humiliation in this world. But his humiliation does not start when he is on trial before Pilate. His humiliation starts well before that. As the answer we get from the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. And that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. So you can see in that answer, Christ's humiliation is not just his death on the cross. Christ's humiliation is really his entire life, from conception to his burial, every bit of it. And if you... Uh, think back to uh, his position in heaven and what he took on himself in taking on uh, the form of a man and, and all that we live in in this world as human beings. Uh, Christ is really humbling himself uh, right from the very beginning when the Holy Ghost comes on Mary. Uh, so we're going to walk through each of these and let's see how is Christ uh, humiliating himself, humbling himself uh, throughout his entire life. First, he was humbled in his birth. Let's look at Luke 2, verses 4 through 7. I kind of referenced the Christmas story a little this morning. It's almost like I'm eager for Christmas. <laughs> 4 through 7? 4 through 7. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was 
the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Right from the beginning, Christ takes the lowest spot. As God, he is running the whole universe. When he gives the command, angels go, they do it. He governs the stars and their motions. He governs the sea and its coming and going. He was showing his lifetime that he has power over the storms. He would say, peace be still, and the storm stops. That is the kind of power Christ has as God. But here, he is completely helpless. Uh, he is truly a baby. He is not merely appearing as a baby. He is truly born as a baby. And that means he is utterly helpless. Babies cannot feed themselves. They cannot bathe themselves. They cannot move themselves. They cannot clean themselves in any way. They are utterly helpless. So the God who is almighty takes to himself a body that is utterly helpless in its birth. That is humiliation. That is lowering yourself. And you see here, he's laid in a manger. It's a feeding trough for animals because there's no room for him. He's created everything. The whole universe belongs to him, and yet there's no room for him in his birth. So look also at Galatians 4.4. 4 tells us a little bit more about the circumstances here. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of woman, born under the law. So Jesus is born not only in this helpless form, born as a baby, he is born under the law. God is not under the law. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, God does not obey that because he is required to by the law. God does that because that's his nature. That's the only God he has any honor for at all is himself. When he says, you shall not murder, God is perfect and just in every life that he takes. He has no desire or need to murder. He is not under the law. And now, in being born as a man, he is required, all of God's creation is required to obey God's law. God is now, in the form of Jesus, being born as a man, required to keep the law. He is born under the law. And that means all the curses of the law are going to apply to him. Every threat, every warning of the law. And ultimately we know he is going to accept the full brunt of all of that curse in himself, even though he was not guilty of it. But the curse that he is going to accept is going to be the curse of the law that he will take on himself. He is born under the law. Uh, that's that's uh, moving from a position of majesty and, and being over the law to taking the lowest part under the law at that point. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 
Proverbs says that a man's riches are his strong tower. There's a lot of security in wealth. You can protect yourself from a lot of trouble in this world if you have enough money. God in heaven owns everything there is. The, the, the lavish descriptions that we have of heaven may be symbolic, but they symbolize the fact that he has all wealth. He has no need of anything. And yet, he is born as a baby who is laid in a manger in a feed, feeding trough. He is born to a poor family. We know they're poor. When they come to make the appropriate offering, they offer two turtle doves. Not a, not a ram. Because the turtle doves were the offering that God prescribed for those who are too poor to afford the regular offering. He's born in the poorest of families. So he goes from a position of utter wealth, unlike anything that Steve Jobs or, or you know, Warren Buffett or anyone ever born on this earth. Solomon himself could not hold a candle to the wealth that God has. And yet he's born to a family that's too poor to afford the regular sacrifice. He, for our sakes, became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. It's not just in his birth, uh, but it's also in just the ordinary miseries of this life that Christ is humiliated. Let's look at Isaiah 53, 3. rejected and if you, you think about um, the place you have to put yourself in to be rejected by someone to be despised by someone that's a very vulnerable position um, you know, the king doesn't have to worry about being rejected if you've got all the power in the world you say oh you don't want me to be king guards take this man you know, hang him <laughs> Uh, you don't got to worry about that. There's, there's, there's no rejection to that. You are the king. You have all authority. You have your way. But Christ comes, and as a man, he is constantly rejected. Not just by you know, the Romans and Gentiles, but it says he came to his own people, and they would not receive him. He is rejected by the very people who should have recognized who he was and should have welcomed him and loved him, and instead he's rejected by these people. And he knows grief sorrow in, in the presence of God it says there is fullness of joy in heaven there is not sorrow we know that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes when we get there and yet Jesus comes and takes on this manhood of a man who will be acquainted with grief and a man of sorrows alright We'll look at three things quickly here. So I'm going to give you three different verses. Y'all hunt them up here. John 4, 6. John 19, 28. 
and Matthew 4, 2. Can you repeat those, please? John 4, 6, John 19, 28, and Matthew 4, 2. What is the first one? John. John 4, 6. John 4, 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Well, that's not the verse I want. Oh, yes, it was. I'm sorry, I was thinking of the next one, actually. He was wearied from his journey. God does not get tired. <laughs> you know, he cannot get tired. It's impossible. And yet, Jesus... Just like us, he's wearied from this journey. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And Matthew 4, 2. After fasting, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So he was weary, he was hungry, he was thirsty. This is humiliation for the God of the universe to suffer any sort of lack, any, su any sort of want in his person. This is to humble himself. He really became one of us. He suffered all the ways that we suffered. He suffered the miseries of this life. And, of course, the, the greatest suffering that he endured uh, was at the cross. He suffered the wrath of God. Matthew 27, 46. It's just normal for us to get tired, get hungry and thirsty. These are common to all of us. But Christ humbles himself even beyond just the normal miseries of this life. And he goes still lower in humbling himself. Matthew 27, 46. Go ahead. Who wants to read the Hebrew? Right about. <laughs> Go ahead. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's... It's the darkest moment of Jesus' life. Uh, it's not just that he's on the cross here, but he is crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, it's, it's one thing to just get hungry or thirsty or tired, but all through his life, all through his suffering, the indignities and the pains and miseries of this life, he has had this close communion with his Father still. He would tell people, you know, I, I do nothing of myself. I'm only doing what I see my father do. And yet here, at his lowest moment, even that communion appears to be broken. He is hanging on the cross for crimes he did not commit. And he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's one thing to be forsaken by friends and acquaintances. But when your closest person to you abandons you in your time of need, that is a level of being forsaken that just crushes your spirit. And the closest person 
to Jesus is the Father. There is no one he was closer to. And so when on the cross he is forsaken by God himself, he's not going to be rescued from this death. God is going to leave him there. And he's feeling that abandonment. He's feeling that loss of communion. And so he, he is lowered to the very lowest point now. Even that communion with God is broken here. Galatians 3.13 You said 13? Yep. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ did nothing wrong, and yet he has made a curse. In fulfillment of the scriptures, he will suffer the wrath of God himself. He will take that wrath on himself willingly, voluntarily. As he had told his disciples, don't you know that I could ask my father and he would send ten legions of angels to, to rescue me? But instead, he stays there. He willingly accepts being made a curse. And I'm stressing that he's willingly taking part in all of this because this is part of, he is humbling himself. At any moment, he could call out, he could be rescued and abandon us. He could prefer himself over us and be rescued himself. It is only by preferring us over himself that we are rescued. It is only by putting us ahead of himself that we are saved. And if you think this is so humbling, this is the ultimate of humiliation here of God. I don't know how to stress that strongly enough. God will put our interests ahead of himself. That's what we are called to do. That's what Philippians, Paul is calling on people to do, to think of others as more than yourself. And Jesus here suffers death because he is putting our interests ahead of his own. He is saving us at the cost of his own life, at the cost of being made a curse, of taking the full brunt of the wrath of God on our behalf. And then the final way in which he suffers humiliation is being dead, buried. John 19, verses 30 to 42. John 19, verses 30 to 42. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. 
He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had, been, had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Death is the ultimate indignity. And even in death, the full punishment is not yet over as they will desecrate his body. As the Roman soldiers will take a spear and shove it into his side to make sure he's really dead. Well, you could swoon with the lance through you, but you would also very assuredly die. <laughs> it's amazing the lengths people will go to to deny what they really already know. And then three days later, push a giant stone out of the way so he can get out of the, you know, no doubt a, a chilly and damp cave that he's buried in. It is quite amazing just how far people will go to just any explanation but reality. And in his death, uh, we talked about how helpless an infant is. But an infant can at least cry when it's hungry or needs something. And in death, Jesus is completely helpless. He will be taken off the cross by others. You'll be wrapped by others. You'll be carried to a tomb by others. Utterly helpless. There's, uh, no dignity in death whatsoever. We will all suffer it someday unless the Lord returns. Um, but there's a reason we have funeral homes and people that help prepare the body. And they don't show that part at the funeral. It's time for the viewing. You were dressed in your Sunday finest, and they, the morticians have done their best to make you look like your best day um, because all of the, the, the proceedings beforehand uh, did not have any of that kind of dignity to them. We treat dead bodies with dignity uh, largely because uh, of we are Christians. We believe that everyone is made in the image of God and has an inherent dignity to them. But in death, there really isn't any dignity. We make the body look presentable to treat it with dignity because the reality of the situation is you have no dignity left. It's all gone with you when you die. And Jesus will uh, not only die here, but he is buried in a borrowed tomb 
was born to a poor family and he never achieved any wealth or riches of his own. Apparently he missed that part of having your best life now. He should have <laughs> declared that, should have you know, claimed all those riches that God wanted him to have. But no, he's buried in a borrowed tomb. Uh, a, a family tomb is an important thing to people of this time. You know, people would be buried, uh, the kings that followed David would be buried in his tomb. It's, you know, it says, this is my family. This is who I am. I am part of this people. And Jesus doesn't even get that. He's not going to be associated with uh, the, the house of David. He's going to be buried in this borrowed tomb of Joseph. So at, at every state... He has the absolute lowest position. And he humbles himself intentionally on our behalf. I want to leave you with something they read us at seminary a couple of weeks ago. It's from a person you've probably never heard of. I had Gregory of Nazianzus, who was part of one of the four great councils, the Council of Chalcedon. And he had this to say. He is sold and very cheap, for it is only for 30 pieces of silver. But he redeems the world, and that at a great price, for the price of his own blood. As a sheep, he is led to the slaughter, but he is the shepherd of Israel, and now of the whole world also. As a lamb, he is silent, yet he is the word, and is proclaimed by the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is bruised and wounded, but he heals every disease and infirmity. He is lifted up and nailed to the tree, but by the tree of life he restores us. Yea, he saves even the robber crucified with him. Yea, he wrapped the visible world in darkness. He is given vinegar to drink mingled with gall. Who? He who turned the water into wine, who is the destroyer of the bitter taste of death, who is sweetness and altogether desired. He lays down his life, but he has power to take it again. And the veil is rent, for the mysterious doors of heaven are opened. The rocks are cleft, the dead arise, he dies, but he gives life, and by his death destroys death. Hmm. That is our God. That is Jesus.